to our once-a-month in-service weekend. Uh, so very glad to have families and students around with us today. As we're in our series, we are continuing in another psalm uh, for our series called Songs for Life. And I was drawn, <clears throat> thinking about life, uh, my thoughts moved to artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence has blurred the lines for what is real and what is imitation. People have used AI for all sorts of things. Uh, some of the funnier things, maybe, that you can now find songs uh, by SpongeBob SquarePants that are actually Chris Tomlin worship songs that he covers. Donald Trump covers uh, Viva La Vida by Coldplay. That's an interesting one to listen to. And Frank Sinatra, if you're a little bit more that way, uh, he covers Bad Romance by Lady Gaga, among other things. There's fun to be had with AI. Uh, and some of it sounds good, some of it is horrible, honestly, uh, but it's interesting just hearing what people have created. But AI can also take a darker turn. There are strikes in Hollywood right now because studios want to use AI to capture and use the likeness of actors whenever they please without compensation. My brother is an actor, and if this goes through, then he might be sitting there watching TV one day and see himself in a movie that he never auditioned for and that he wouldn't be paid for. It wouldn't really be him. Today's psalm talks about the real God and the reality of imitation gods, with the worship of humanity hanging in the balance. What does it mean to worship the one true God? in a world full of imitation gods vying for our affection and our allegiance. We're going to do our scripture reading a little different today. I would invite you all to stand up as we normally do if you are able to stand. And we are going to be doing a bit of a call and response. We'll have words on the screen for you to read. Lauren is going to uh, lead you guys, and I will do the opposites. But this is Psalm 115. Please participate with us. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but cannot hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord... Trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Today I want to remind you 
I want to remind all of us, I want to show us that God is worthy of worship. In order to do that, we will see three things. First, the powerfulness of God, then the powerlessness of idols, and finally, the praise of humanity. So first, the powerfulness of God. The writer opens this psalm with a petition for God to glorify his own name. It is natural for us humans to want to make a name for ourselves. We want to be recognized for our achievements. Schools have awards and scholarships, jobs have promotions, even compliments that bear no advance in career or education can make us feel seen and socially important. The writer of this psalm today was not interested in any of that. Instead, he wants God to glorify his name. For God to glorify his name is to show himself off. The writer wants God to reveal himself, to make himself known for the sake of his love and his faithfulness, which he has proven since the beginning of time. The entire history of the Israelites shows us God's love and faithfulness. We have that here in the scriptures. Over and over again, he promised that he would be with his people, that he would save them from their sin, from their rebellion against him. He promised to deliver them even from death and send a savior who would lead us back into right relationship with God. And God proved it through miracles and raising up leaders and giving his good law. God had preserved his people throughout their history despite his people's best efforts to leave God in the history books. So why is the writer crying out to God to reveal himself to defend his long history of love and faithfulness to his people. Well, it would seem that either the nations had never heard about their God, or the nations had forgotten God's power. Verse 2 says, the nations say, where is their God? It's unclear when this psalm was written or by whom it was written, but it is suggested that it was composed sometime after the Jews had been exiled from their land. And if you don't know, here's a brief history lesson. Israel was split into two kingdoms after King Solomon had passed away. The northern kingdom was Israel, kept the name, the southern kingdom, Judah. After rebelling against God, the northern kingdom of Israel was carried off into captivity by Assyria, a more powerful nation. The southern kingdom of Judah lasted a little bit longer, but their rebellion against God also led them into captivity when they were conquered by Babylon. The Israelites were taken away from their homes and their place of worship, and they were scattered throughout the empire, dissolving their national identity and throwing them into obscurity. After 70 years, that's 7-0, seven 70 years of exile, Persia defeated Babylon and allowed the Jews to return to their home to rebuild. From an outside perspective, it appeared that the Jews were tossed to and fro by the superpowers of their day. The military might and political prowess of a nation was linked to the might and power of its gods. It seemed the Jews were subject to the wills of the gods of these foreign nations. Maybe the Jewish god was absent, or maybe he didn't have the power to help his people. The nations could point to the statues and carvings of their gods and say, see, our God is with us and led us to victory. Where is your God? What evidence do you have that he's even here? 
Like I said a couple minutes back, I pastor the high school students here, the senior high kids, and I was teaching downstairs a few weeks ago on spiritual warfare, and one of the students asked a great question. She said, how can we know the spiritual realm exists if we can't see it? We can't use standard scientific methods to deduce the existence of what we cannot see. We can't use science to prove what science is not designed to prove. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But it makes it really hard to try to point to God and say to others, See, here he is. Here's the one that I follow, if you can't see him. And when things don't go the way that we hope, we might find ourselves asking the same question that the nations are asking. Where is my God? God, do you see what I'm going through? God, do you know what I need right now? We might feel like we're stuck for so long and there hasn't been an answer to our prayers and we cry out, God, can you hear me? When we can't see or sense God, the psalmist reminds us, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. By saying this, the writer isn't limiting God to one particular place, but instead is saying God's power and presence is limitless. He has no bounds. He's so far above and beyond all problems and nations and circumstances. He can do anything he wants. So a natural question that we should ask is, what is it that God wants? And what he wants is for his name to be made large. He wants to be known. And he does that by caring for us. He wants to care for us. Just as he chose to pursue Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of Israel through all of Israel's history, he still chooses today to pursue us. God is free to do as he pleases, and it pleases him to listen to us, to meet our needs, and to show us how big and powerful and good he is. But we can get it mixed up. We can think that when things don't go our way, that God doesn't hear us. We would do well to think whether our petitions to God, our prayers, are for God to be glorified or if our hearts really just want us to be glorified. If we want what God wants or if we want what we want. Remember, the passage says God does whatever he pleases, not whatever we pleases. Too many of my prayers are selfish. And I'm glad that God denies prayers. Because he knows better than I do. And he has so much more in mind for me than I ever could. So we might equate our desired outcomes with proof that God is working. A glance through scripture, though, reveals that nothing could be further from the truth. Joseph, sold into slavery, thrown into prison. I wonder what he was thinking for every day and year that he was sitting there in his cell. I doubt Moses knew what was going on, what God was doing for the 40 years between him running away from Egypt to when he was called by God to go back to Egypt and free his people from slavery. I wonder if Queen Esther could sense God with her as she fought to save her countrymen. We wonder at the questions that went through Mary's mind or her family's mind. 
when she was found pregnant with Jesus despite being a virgin. The disciples didn't believe that Jesus going to the cross and dying was going to solve any problems, and Peter actively tried to stop Jesus' mission. And once Jesus had died, they were scared and hiding, afraid that they would be next. I don't understand what God is doing in every present moment of my life, but things change when we will look at our lives through heaven's eyes. To quote Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, from the movie Prince of Egypt, we don't know if he actually said these words, because this is a cartoon. Uh, it was actually a song, which is great, but I'll just read it for us. Um, in the movie, Jethro says, a single thread in a tapestry, though its color brightly shines, can never see its purpose in the pattern of the grand design. God is greater than the highs and the lows. He cares more deeply for us than anyone ever could. He's not aloof and far away. He's living and active and capable. He's accessible and always ready to answer. The psalmist is indignant that anyone would question God's power. After declaring the freedom that God has to engage whenever and in whatever way he so chooses, the writer turns the tables. He effectively says, oh, you want to know where my God is? Why don't you show me your gods? The ones that are made of metal and stone. The ones that are made of wood and nails. The ones that can't help you. They can't even help themselves. Verses 4 to 7 are a swift condemnation and a laugh in the face that anyone would put their hope in these things. So, let's consider the powerlessness of idols. What is the allure of idols? And what's the problem with them? Why would we turn to idols at all? Tim Keller, who was an author and pastor from New York, said this, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, and anything that you seek to give you what only God has given. God detests idols because they take away from the glory that he deserves. Keller says elsewhere that anything can be an idol when we take a good thing and we make it our ultimate thing. So this definition is helpful because we might not worship idols in the way that the psalm describes. Especially in the West, we don't have a lot of imagery with our religions. Uh, some Eastern religions do with statues or carvings and the like, but that doesn't let us off the hook when it comes to worship. We might not engage in what we would consider stereotypical idolatry, but we still give our hearts to all sorts of things that take God's place as the most important in our lives. We might not give in to superstition, but we are susceptible to believing that something other than God might have some power or control, and so we give our allegiance to that. Spouses, children, houses, these are our idols. Security, careers, comfort, these are our idols. 
Sex and status and entertainment and crystals and astrology and ancestors and health and physical appearance and beauty, these are our idols. And at some point in that list, you were agreeing with me, and at some point in that list, you became very uncomfortable because we all have our idols. So the question is, what's yours? What is your idol? Or more accurately, what are your idols? When we turn to these things for satisfaction and fulfillment, we tell God, hey, I don't trust you. I don't think you're as good as you say you are. I don't think you can provide for me the things that I think I need. I don't even know if you're there. And if you are, I don't know if you care. So we turn to lesser things and we make those things our gods. We give up on God, the giver of life, and try to find life in things that ultimately will not satisfy because we were made for Him. Even an honest effort to represent God by fashioning an idol is forbidden by God because it grossly misrepresents Him. A created thing cannot capture the beauty and essence and wonder of the uncreated God. This is why the first two of the Ten Commandments revolve around appropriate worship. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The worship of idols even idols crafted by the worshiper to draw them closer to the one true God, without fail, leads the worshiper away from God instead. Instead, we are drawn towards something of our own creation. Interesting that the last commandment of the ten is do not covet. Again, speaking to the idolatry of our hearts. It's like when a kid draws a picture of mom or dad and gives it to them, and they hang it on their fridge. It's a place of honor. It's a nice picture. It might just be a stick person. That's okay. But if the kid suddenly starts going to the fridge and every morning goes to the picture and goes, Mommy, I love you, we, we, we should start to get concerned a little bit. The kid goes and says, Daddy, can I have something to eat? Mommy, I need $20. Hey, Dad, I backed the car into a tree today. Can you please forgive me? Thanks, bye. Right? We would think that the kid needs some serious help, and the kid wouldn't receive the serious help that they're asking for because the picture can't do anything. The picture isn't who the picture represents, and the picture itself is an understatement of that person. So how could an idol created by human hands, created by created things, possibly capture the limitless nature and essence of the divine and uncreated God. It can't. But it does reflect what's going on in the idol factory that is our hearts. We build idols to fulfill the desires of our hearts. John Piper a scholar and a pastor and the chancellor of Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minnesota, he narrows down the making of an idol even further when he writes this. I don't think it would be a stretch to say that the foremost image of man that threatens to replace God 
is the image we see in the mirror. We are lovers of self-exaltation, which threatens continually our love of God-exaltation. So God detests idols because they take away from the glory he deserves. But verse 8 also gives warning about worshiping idols, that those who worship and pursue idols become like them. Those who make them become like them, so do all those who trust in them. So how does the psalm describe idols? Blind, mute, deaf, lame, silent. Having the appearance of life and yet not truly being alive. Those who worship idols become like their idols. Ultimately, if we pursue anything other than the living God, we are not living. We're dead inside. And that should make us pause. Putting our trust in things that cannot satisfy. Seeking pleasure and prosperity from lifeless, helpless idols ultimately leaves us lifeless and helpless. And when we covet the idol and what it gives us, we risk catastrophe. If you've seen Indiana Jones, then you know this intrepid explorer is always on the hunt for the next thing. And here we see him pursuing a true idol, what we might imagine when we think of idols. But if you know the movie, he takes the idol, he thinks it's all good, he's about to swap it with a weighted bag to try to trick the system, but then suddenly the whole temple complex starts crashing down around him and he realizes he's in trouble. And he manages to get out, safe and sound, but we're cheering him on because we want him to get what he desires, even in the middle of the catastrophe that it brings to him. So how could a thing created by human hands ever be worthy of worship? The prophet Habakkuk says, What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. If God is a powerful one, which he is, and idols are the powerless ones, which they are, we would be fools to trust in idols. Ah, but that's what we're so good at doing. We're really good at putting our trust in anything other than God. We make idol after idol, pursuing desire after desire, and all of it leads us away from the only one who can truly satisfy. This is why the writer implores us, trust in the Lord, turn your heart to him. There are two sets of statements here in verses 9 to 13 that mirror one another. The first instructs Israel, the house of Aaron, and God-fearers to trust in the Lord because he is our help and our shield, as we sang earlier this morning. Effectively, the writer is calling all people to find their help in God. No one loves like God loves. No one fights like God fights. No one defends like God defends or provides like God provides. To emphasize this, the writer shows that God blesses those who fear him, great and small. It doesn't matter who we are. God invites all of us to come to him, to put our trust in him with whatever we have, and he promises to bless and remember those who submit to him. That's an incredible thing. That this God who is so big, 
this God who is perfect in all of his ways would be pleased, remember he only does what he pleases, would be pleased to look down on sinful humanity and pour his heart of love out for us. That the king who made heaven and earth and all that is within them would also stretch out his hand to lift up the brokenhearted and the downtrodden. To restore the broken, to seek the lost, to bind up the hurting and give life to the dead. My friends, this is how God is able to turn the idolatrous hearts of humanity back to himself. He entered the scene and he took on human flesh. He walked this world and gave his life for ours. Jesus, in love for us, became human. The uncreated one putting on created flesh. The limitless God of the universe becoming bound in frail human form. That he would be humiliated from his station in heaven so that he could walk among us. The Son of God, Lord of creation, entering the chaos of a people chasing all sorts of idols. Entering into the lives of humanity, chasing all sorts of desires. Jesus does not waver in his love for us and his devotion to his Father. In perfect obedience, Jesus showed us what God is like and how to live like him. In perfect submission, Jesus took the cross for us, taking the death we deserve for the evil of our sin, for the wrongness of our ways. In perfect power, Jesus broke the seal of death and rose from the grave, offering life to anyone who would come to him for forgiveness and salvation. This is the blessing and the increase that we now receive from the Lord as he remembers us. That now Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit so that we can be called children of God. That we can worship the living God and receive life and that, that, we, that life can be lived to the full. So the question that is posed by this psalm is, how will we respond this day? How will we worship? Because we all worship. We just have to choose what we're going to worship. Verses 16 to 18, uh, I see two instructions in this. And it's up to us to choose how we want to fulfill those instructions. The first, we will consider the praise of humanity. So, verse 16. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. Once again, God's lofty power is noted by his place in the heavens, kind of echoing verse 3 from earlier. He's so far beyond all of creation, so much more powerful than we could ever imagine. And the prophet Isaiah reminded Israel of this. He wrote, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Yet as we've realized already today, this does not mean that God is ignorant or impotent when it comes to what's happening on the earth. He didn't just set things in motion at creation and then leave. He didn't mold the earth, throw it out into space and go his own way. He is intimately aware of and cares for the things of earth. He made all of creation to point out how good he is. 
This verse, verse 16, highlights the responsibility God gave to humanity in his created order. It is our duty to care for creation. We guard it. We keep it. We nurture it. In so doing, we reflect God's heart for his creation. We worship him and we fulfill verse 8 actually in a positive way. That as we put our trust in God, we become like him. As we deeply care for creation, we reveal to all around us how much God cares for everyday things. But it's our choice. We are more than capable of abusing creation as well. We are more than capable of selfishly seeking our best instead of the best for everyone and everything around us. Creation is the ground, the trees, the oceans, the animals, the sky, our bodies, the people sitting next to us in this very room. How quickly we mangle the mandate that God has given for our own gain. Exploitation of resources, human trafficking, greed, and jealousy. We destroy the things and the people God made to express his awesome wonder, and we misuse the gifts God has given. And in the process, we end up destroying ourselves. So let us be diligent and compassionate, caring for our brothers and sisters, caring for the earth, treating it as God would. You saw a couple demonstrations by Ernie today with the Love Our City event that's coming up end of August. Ways that we can give to our city, care for our neighbors, care for this earth. That is part of our mandate. But at the same time, let us not worship creation in place of God. To steward the earth well is to address it in its appropriate place. Earth is not worthy of worship. That's the problem with idols. They're fashioned from creation, they're modeled after created things, and they offend the creator himself. The apostle Paul addressed this when he wrote the letter to the church in Rome regarding how humanity chooses to worship creation instead of creator. Here's what he wrote. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Creation directs our praise to the creator. Creation itself is not divine or supernatural. I'm pretty sure that's still our slogan in BC, right? Supernatural British Columbia. There's a mysticism to it. There's a spirituality associated with nature and all this sort of stuff, and a, a, a panentheism of God in nature. No. Creation has no power of its own. Creation instead draws us and directs us to the power of the God who created it. But we are not to worship creation. And this leads us 
To the second instruction as response to God's power on display, verse 17 and 18. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore, praise the Lord. As we fulfill God's purposes in our lives, we praise God. Our lives are always lives of worship. Like I said, it just depends on what it is that you are worshiping. But we are all people of worship. We can't help but worship. It's what we were made to do. Here, the writer highlights the declaration of our praise. Notice that those who go down into silence, they don't praise God. They can't speak. They're dead. You don't sing. You don't make noise in your throats. It kind of sounds like the language used to describe the idols because the idols are dead. There's no life in them. And when you're dead, there's no life in you. So, when we go to the grave, we don't praise God anymore. My grandparents are buried in Mountain View Cemetery in Vancouver. Uh, this is the walkway to their gravestone. Theirs is the kind of shorter one on the right there next to the tree. Um, when my grandmother passed away, she went first. My grandfather like glued pictures using contact cement to the headstone where his name was going to go as though he wasn't going to ever die. And then he passed away a couple years later and we had to chip it off and get a whole new headstone because he had ruined it. But they're both buried there. There's something tranquil about graveyards. There's a, a silent stillness to the space. But graveyards are a reminder that we all die. Graveyards are a reminder of the frailty of this life that we live. In the end, being human has a 100% mortality rate. Everybody dies. But the psalmist isn't focused on being dead. Instead, we are encouraged to make the most of the time we have while we're alive. Our God is a living God, the living God. And we should worship him while we live. While there is breath in our lungs and voice in our throats and thoughts in our heads and hopes and dreams and aspirations and desires in our hearts, let us use our voices to express our joy and gratitude and praise to God. Another translation says, it is we who extol the Lord, both now and forevermore. Praise the Lord. The emphasis is that it is we, the living, we, the righteous through Jesus, we, the trusting, we, the God-fearers, we, the Lord's children who praise him. Until our bodies are silent in the grave, we will praise him. And yet in the midst of life, let us not forget that God has overcome the grave. It's because Jesus died that we have the hope of eternal life. Though the psalmist's focus is life on this side of the grave, there's a much more full realization of verse 18 when, he, when it's written that we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. When Jesus rose from the dead, we received the promise that we too will rise with him, that we will live with him forever. Our trust is in Jesus who grants us access to our Father. It is not our trust that saves us. It is the one in whom we have trust. It is not the amount of faith that we have in Jesus. It is Jesus in whom we have faith that saves us. Don't get that backwards. Jesus allows us to come in. Jesus allows us as the Son of God to sit with him 
and be called children of God. God looks at us and sees his son in us, around us, over us. And he loves us so much, he brings us in. This should lead us to worship. God is worthy of worship. So instead of pursuing military might and political prowess as signs that God is at work, we should lean into the virtues of trust and fear of God. It is there that we will be corrected in our expectation of what God is doing. It's when we trust in Him that we can weather every circumstance life can throw our way, discern what is real and good, and as Jesus said, we will be able to worship God in spirit and in truth. Charles Spurgeon a preacher from the 1800s, reflected on this great duty of man. It is a privilege and honor to worship the Lord, and his musings led Spurgeon to write this. Though the dead cannot, and the wicked will not, and the careless do not praise God, yet we will shout hallelujah forever and ever. God, powerful as he is, has overcome the grave, rendering all other gods helpless. No other faith can claim that. Every other religion, every other faith, every other self-help will always end up with death. There is one faith that ends in life. There's only one person of faith who rose from the dead. And I'm willing to listen to a guy that rose from the dead. Not to be disrespectful by calling him a guy, but every other faith leader is still dead. Jesus is alive today and forevermore. And in his life, he invites us to have life today and forevermore, to find all of our satisfaction in him and him alone. Amen? This morning, we have the joy of celebrating this with communion. In communion, we remember and declare God's steadfast love and his faithfulness. We celebrate this truth and praise him for his mercy toward us. Our Father in heaven was pleased. Remember, he only does what he pleases. But he was pleased to have his own son, Jesus, give up his life in our place. that we could be raised to life with him and be called children of God. So we are blessed with life through Jesus. If you have put your faith, your hope in Jesus, then you are invited to participate in this celebration. And if you want to trust Jesus today, you can. Confess your sin that leads to death. Lay down your idols. Repent of your rebellion against God. Believe that Jesus' life and death and resurrection saves you. Receive the gift of life and forgiveness that God freely offers because the debt has been paid by Jesus. And receive his Holy Spirit as well to live in you, to lead you all the days of your life. You can join us today in celebrating the salvation that only Jesus offers. There is no other way. And if today you don't confess Jesus as Lord, then we're delighted that you're here, that you get to see and witness and participate in this good news. 
to hear the wonder of God's love, to learn about his power that is able to break the grip of death, that is able to break the grip of sin, that is able to heal and restore and give life. We are so glad that you are here to hear that today. But as we are passing around these trays, I would ask that you just pass them on down without taking something out of them. Everyone in this room has passed the tray by until they have been able to declare Jesus as their Lord, having put faith in him and trusting in him alone. So don't feel singled out. I've done it myself, but this is only for those who confess and believe in Jesus. Communion reinforces that our hope and our help and our trust is in Jesus alone. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples. The Apostle Matthew, who was there that night, recounts the evening. He writes this, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Through Jesus, we are blessed by the Lord. Through Jesus, God becomes our help and our shield. Through Jesus, we are able to steward the earth and praise God in the fullness of our being. And so at this time, I invite those serving communion to come to the table. As they do, some instruction for us as we receive from the trays. At Willingdon, it's our custom to serve the bread and then to take the bread together and then to serve the cup and take the cup together. We also pause before we participate to reflect and allow the Lord to speak to us. Has something taken God's place in your life? The gospel is for those who are fresh to faith and for those who have been walking in faith a long time. Sometimes the longer we walk, the easier it is to just fall into routine. We lose sight of the hope that we have in Jesus. Is there something that has taken God's place in your life? We need to repent of those things. And the great news is the forgiveness God offers is free and full and overflowing. So, we're going to spend a couple of minutes, ask the Lord, and I'll come back up to move us into the next part. Let's pray.